This podcast is sponsored by Rask Invest, Owen's complete guide to money and investing. Rask Invest members receive Owen's official investment ideas, research on budgets, banking, super and insurance, plus how-to guides to get started. Visit the Rask Finance website to learn more and join today. Hello and thanks for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast, a series exploring the investment philosophies and journeys of some of Australia's leading investors and financial thinkers. I'm Owen Raskovich, founder of The Rask Group. For show notes and other episodes in this series, as well as free educational resources, please visit www.raskfinance.com. Before we go on, it's important to remember the Australian Investors Podcast is provided for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment, financial or taxation decision. The information included in this podcast does not take into account your needs, goals or objectives and guests appearing on the show may have a financial interest in some of the products mentioned. Please read all the important disclosure documents and refer to the RAS Group's Financial Services Guide on the RAS Finance website. Luke Cummings is the Chief Investment Officer and Co-Founder of Harvest Lane Asset Management, a funds management company which focuses on special situations. From a business perspective, Luke has been very successful in a relatively short period of time. As a teenager, he mingled with some of Australia's most highly regarded investors before rising quickly through the ranks at E-Trade and has since co-founded two businesses. Luke emphasizes some important lessons about working hard and taking calculated risks. His investment strategy is relatively unique in Australia, but while it may seem complicated, Luke distills the key tenets very well throughout this episode. If you're new to the world of hedge funds, or you think you may need to brush up on some key terms to get the most from this discussion, please visit the Rask Finance website where we've created a free short course addressing the key ideas discussed in this and future episodes. Please enjoy this conversation with Luke Cummings of Harvest Lane Asset Management. Luke, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's um, it's a really, I think this is going to be a really good chat because you bring some insights to the table that we certainly haven't had on the show before. And not only that, you do it very well. And your strategy and the business that you've started is open to most investors. So I'm really looking forward to getting through and talking about some of the nitty gritty of what you do. But uh, as with all episodes in the series, I'd like to go back and hear more about you and, and your journey to finance. So sure. um, let's talk about where your passion for finance came from. Yeah, okay. So um, look, I guess you know a lot of people in my situation, you hear these stories about uh, little businesses they had when they were eight or 10 years old or mm. you know, a grandfather who was interested in stock market investing or uh, you know, any number of kind of formative um, experiences but uh, you know the truth is in in my case um, you know I came from a a fairly middle-class family Um, certainly I don't think anyone in my family had ever invested in the stock market Um, it it certainly wasn't a table of uh, sorry a topic of a dinner table conversation Mm -hmm. Um, and you know beyond kind of the ASX share market game which we uh, you know I guess most kids um, who study finance at at school uh, or business studies end up uh, participating in Mm -hmm. um, you know I did that and had no idea what I was doing and uh, it would be fair to say Uh, and you know, post school, I was originally going to be studying journalism, um, and uh, I guess I'd done well in in English and you know writing at, at school, and that was kind of the plan. Uh, and very much at the last minute, decided that uh, that wasn't going to be for me. Um, and uh, more or less, my earliest role, uh, my first job was at Platinum Asset Management. Um, Great. When 
uh, you know, they were probably fairly early stages for them. Uh, that would have been um, around about uh, 1990, late 98, early 99 I was with them. They had 15 people then. Mm. Um, I can't remember what uh, funds under management was, but um, they weren't that far removed from their time at, at BT. Um, you know, and it was obviously an amazing place to work and they've done extremely well for themselves. So I think to, to be in a team of 15 people there, I was by far the youngest and, and least experienced. Um, but, you know, my desk was outside where they were having the morning meeting every day. So, uh, you know, you couldn't kind of help but hear, um, you know, what they were talking about and, and the thought process they would go through around investments and markets. Uh, my job um, was very much an operational role in terms of, you know, um, making sure that trades were settling and stock was allocated to the correct funds and, and that type of thing. And I think, you know, it was hard to, to be in that environment and not be passionate about the market or at least be more interested in it because I, I guess I didn't really understand it at that point. Um, you know, having said that, I think from a, a monetary perspective, um, you know, I, I grew up in a middle-class household. Um, we certainly didn't go without things, but I guess as a, a kid you're aware of, you know, what people have and don't have and, and certainly... You know, I, I think um, I was aware of other people who had more than us in terms of whether it's houses or cars or holidays or, or whatever the case may mm -hmm. be. And, and I think something inside of me, like the idea of having money, I, I guess for security, or, or not that I would have called it optionality at the time, but the, the nice thing I think about you know, financial security or, or having money isn't necessarily buying the cars or the houses, although a lot of people probably think when they're starting out that that's what it's about. That's why, you know, you want to accumulate wealth but I think for me it's you know the security of just kind of knowing you can within reason do what you like that if there's an emergency in a family that you know you have the ability to um, you know to help people through that or help yourself through that um, and I think some of the nice things that you know you can kind of do for others who are, who are maybe not as fortunate as you are so um, you know I think that's probably where my interest came from and, and I probably read a Rich Dad Poor Dad book around the time that you know I'd, I'd started university and this whole idea of com not just the compounding but you know the idea that you can generate money that isn't proportionate to the effort you're putting in um, not in terms of not working hard but you know if you're a personal trainer or you're a laborer or you know to some extent if you're a lawyer or, or something you're getting paid by the hour and the amount of work that you can do um, you know in some way more or less directly correlates to what you're earning. I think the cool thing about investing is that that's not necessarily the case. So I can do the same amount of work every single day and some days I'm going to make a lot of money and some days I might lose money and you, you know you don't get paid proportionally for your effort. Uh, you can certainly get outsized rewards for that and I think there's, you know, for me at least, something inherently appealing about that. Yeah, wonderful. There's, um, that book... Um, it's got its, you know, it's got its critics, but it it does have some wonderful nuggets of wisdom in it. And yeah, absolutely. I think you know, I mean, especially for someone who's inexperienced, um, you know, I think there's that book, and, and there are others. I guess you know, for me, Barefoot Investor comes to mind. Mm -hmm. um, you know, yep. he also has his critics. Uh, I I definitely don't agree with everything he says, but I think that you know, the benefit of those books, and there are, there are certainly others, is that. You know, you need to start the journey somewhere. So things that seem really basic to you and I right now, once upon a time we didn't know anything about. Mm -hmm. And I think getting, you know, good information, basic information at the outset is important. Um, you know, and, and ideally you, you build from there. But, uh, I mean, in my case, 
you know, with zero background, um, that, that was you know definitely helpful. And uh, the other thing, as we're talking, that I do remember is uh, my favourite board game by far when we were kids was Monopoly. Um, <laughs> More or less, no one in my family will play Monopoly with me anymore, and that was been the case for quite some time. But um, maybe there was something deep down inside of me uh, from from much uh, when I was much younger that um, I didn't appreciate at the time. But uh. I actually did a feedback, uh, a survey of some of our readers the other day, and um, I gave them the option of Cluedo or Monopoly. Overwhelmingly, it was Monopoly. Yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. So you moved into this role at Platinum. Had you been to uni? No, so I I had finished high school um, and I was literally studying um, at night and and working at Platinum um, throughout the day. So, uh, you know, I guess just my financial circumstances at the time were such that, you know, full-time uni wasn't really an option for me. Um, I think I've been always fairly ambitious, the idea of doing a job that wasn't necessarily building towards something... um, you know, for the, the time that I was studying wasn't particularly appealing to me. I, I was, you know, kind of inclined to just get out there and, and start working and, and study, uh, which, you know, obviously had its advantages and disadvantages. Um, I definitely wouldn't do it any differently, but I also don't have some of the stories from uh, my university days that, uh, you know, others would have. Yeah. But um, And I think it was helpful, you know, certainly uh, to have some idea you know when you're at university and you're learning about how that can be applied in the real world um, and I guess we'll, we'll talk a bit more about our strategy later on but you know one thing I think is that when you're at university and you haven't yet had the chance to apply things like the efficient market hypothesis and you know this idea that everything's kind of correctly priced and, and this does work and that doesn't work and when interest rates go up this is what happens and you know it, it all sounds so basic and there are these rigid rules and then you know, in my experience, at least, you get into the real world, mm. and and most of that doesn't apply. And certainly, over the past you know ten years or so, you could argue that everything that's supposed to happen, uh, you know, from an economic theory point of view, is if you'd done the exact opposite, you uh, you were probably on the right track. Mm. So, um, I think it was helpful at the time to you know understand some of these concepts, um, you know, in a practical way rather than just something that uh, that I was reading in a textbook. Yeah, that's great. I think. Uh, the analogy that stuck with me is that uh, you got to know the rules of the game before you can play it, but uh, I wholeheartedly agree. It's great to have that applied learning. And I imagine just being a fly on the wall or on the other side of the wall, rather, at Platinum would have been uh, you know, eye-opening for you. Did Were you trading or were you buying shares at this time? No, absolutely not. Um, no one in their right mind would have let me uh, buy or sell uh, anything at, at that point in time. So, I mean, my job you know, literally was um, you know, a back office role of the portfolio managers are obviously doing trades either, you know, presumably through dealers most of the time. Um, you know, this is kind of only when people were e- using email and using the internet. So we were still getting contract notes by faxes. And um, I'm not sure if you've ever been uh, unlucky enough to work in a, an operations-based uh, you know, role at a broker or a fund manager. But you know, literally little things like um, you know, a name and address details that the broker has registered the stock in versus what the actual name of your fund is, is you know, going to cause a problem with settlement. Um, obviously Platinum being an international fund manager uh, time zones were an issue as were language you know they bought some uh, (laughs) Italian stock and uh, I'm trying to liaise with someone who speaks broken English and I speak no Italian and we're doing this at um, you know the early hours of the morning or or whatever was uh, (laughs) was interesting but um, I think you know the thing for me that I probably took away from that the most was just um, how thorough the process was uh, that they would go through in terms of you know, deciding to buy a stock or deciding to, to sell it. Um, mm. Certainly don't have any intention of giving away all of their secrets, but, you know, I think I gained a real appreciation for the fact that 
there just aren't any shortcuts, I think. You know, you have to do the work and you have to, um, you know, have confidence in your own ability, but also be, you know, kind of humble enough to realise that you probably can't know everything and, and that things, you know, you can have blind spots and, and understanding maybe where your thesis is wrong. Um, you, you know, it was an interesting intellectual process and, and to watch the team, you know, debate, you know, different ideas, I think that was probably, you know, I mean, I have an amazing amount of respect for what those guys have done since, but um, I think for someone as young as I was and with so little work experience, to have such high standards and to apply such rigour to, you know, your job um, and the investment process, uh, I think has just stuck with me ever since. That's, you know, that's kind of my baseline now, mm-hmm. so that's what I expect, whereas that could have been very different had I worked, you know, somewhere else initially, I think. Yeah, oftentimes we um, we might just pair up with a friend or something and go in and chuck $500 in the share market and see what happens, but I suppose yeah. with you... Yeah, look, I mean, absolutely. Having said that, you know, (laughs) very much so my first investment I ever made was not a particularly good one, nor did it have a lot of rigour attached to it. But uh, I think, um, you know, that's really something that kind of stuck with me is that, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there you're competing against who are doing a lot of work to try and make money and outperform you. And and if you're not kind of going to do that work, no one else is really going to do it for you, you know, typically. I mean, obviously you can, can have people helping you along the way, but... Um, you know, I, I don't know. People don't hand it to you on a uh, on a platter, I guess. So. No, they don't. Um, so after your time at Platinum, you joined E-Trade. Yeah. Uh, just the yep. online broker. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, online broker. Now, um, it has since had a change of name and, and is now wholly owned by ANZ. Um, ANZ uh, sorry, it, it's not. I think it was actually literally just sold by ANZ in the last six months or so. But um, at the time, ANZ was a, a major shareholder in the company. Um that was really at a time when I guess online broking was in its very formative stages. So um, my first couple of weeks there and maybe first couple of months were literally people who were calling to complain because the website had crashed or calling to complain because they placed an order that had taken three hours to get executed and the price was substantially different or any number of things because you know the technology platform wasn't robust uh, it was kind of right at the end of the tech boom um, you know obviously everyone wanted to share, trade shares at that mm. point in time the riskier the better um, but you know that that was a really good experience for me because um, you know I didn't have a lot of work experience beyond the time I'd spent at Platinum but the great thing was no one else had a lot of work experience uh, in online broking in particular mm. because it was such a new industry that um there were no kind of rules and there wasn't anyone who'd had 20 years experience in online broking because online broking was 12 or 18 months old at the time. So um, I kind of feel like, you know, I've got a lot more development over and above what I would have if I'd worked somewhere more established just by virtue of the fact that, you know, we were kind of making it up as as we went along and and there was no real hierarchy or rules as such. It was like you just had to get through, um, you know, the days and the weeks and and if you showed initiative, there was a, you know, real opportunity to do well there. So, um, you know, much like Platinum in terms of, I feel like I got maybe five years experience in, you know, a year or a year and a half, uh, E-Trade was kind of the same for me, I think. Yeah, uh, and you must have been doing something right. I read. I think I read somewhere that you were the youngest ever dealing manager. Is that right? Uh, yeah, as far as I know, that's right. Um, so what does that mean? <laughs> so, uh, well, like I was saying, I, I think that 
you know, they were looking for people to probably step up and take responsibility for things. It was a very young workforce generally, um, and we had a lot of, you know, customer complaints about a whole bunch of things at, at various times. Um, and, you know, I guess maybe I'd had, you know, uh, the experience of working at Platinum where, you know, you, you kind of worked hard and you had to be efficient and, you know, it's not that someone wouldn't help you, but you kind of had to be um, fairly self-sufficient. So I think probably somewhere along the way I started to show initiative or that I could take responsibility. Um, and uh, I don't know exactly how long it took, but, you know, at, at a point in time I was more or less heading up the whole customer service and dealing function um, at E-Trade, uh, funny story actually, it was, um, it was my 21st birthday when, <laughs> when uh, I mean, I'd been working there for three years at that point, and um, uh, everyone knew it was my birthday, but I don't think everyone, I think everyone thought it was my 30th birthday, not my 21st <laughs> birthday, and uh, I did notice a little bit of a shift, uh, at least temporarily, where everyone, you know, especially senior management was like, this guy's 21 and we're letting him uh, letting him do this. I, I think everyone had assumed it was too late by then. So uh, I was I was already, you know, well and truly uh, <laughs> ingrained in that role. So, um, and, and that was, you know, interesting uh, from the perspective of a lot of people were moving from full service broking where despite being called full service, I think their experience generally was that, you know, it was nothing of the sort. They were probably paying, you know, Prior to online broking starting, people were still paying you know one or two percent commission on on trades. You certainly weren't getting you know real time updates about execution or, or visibility on prices. And I think a lot of people, you know, really moved from on uh, from full service broking to online. But that had its own challenges because you know just because you can fill in a form and uh, deposit some money into a trading account doesn't really mean that you should probably be let loose um, you know to, to just buy and sell things um, as you wish I mean there, there are obviously basic you know kind of rules and structures that dictate the market and and I think you know and I'm sure we'll talk about it, but that sort of led on to our next role but we we kind of observed that all these people were, were moving to save money because they felt they weren't getting great value elsewhere mm-hmm. but you know, I guess there's direct costs and indirect costs and, and saving, you know, $100 of commission but losing $5,000 because you do something stupid because you don't know better, um, you know, it's obviously false economy. So, um, you, you know, that was, was interesting. It was a very interesting insight into investor psychology and in particular because, you know, the tech crash happened more or less, you know, within a month or two of me starting um, at E-Trade. So, you know, to experience the investor emotion and how they reacted to that, um, I was fortunate enough not to have any of my own money in the market at the time. But um, yeah, it was interesting, and I think you know also fairly helpful in terms of where my career has ended up so far. Yeah, there would have been a few horror stories out of the, the dot com crash coming through to your desk. Uh, yeah, horrible. I, I mean, you know, really bad in the sense that um, not that I you know want to put too much of it down in the conversation, but I mean, there were people who were you know had we had literally spoken to every day for, for months and months who were, you know, either having to, you know, sell houses and sell businesses and getting divorced and, you know, someone who I remember trying to take their own life. Like a, a lot of these types of things where, you know, I remember one person who had turned, you know, I think $50,000 into $10 million in tech stocks and lost it all within a matter of months and, and didn't liquidate anything, sell anything on the way down. Um, and I mean, that's, you know, obviously making $10 million is life changing, but, but losing it can be as well. So, um, and you know, I, I don't know, that's something that, that definitely sticks with me from that you know, period of time. For sure. So uh, the, the next stage in your career is very interesting. We talked off air about this briefly. 
um, you decided to leave E-Trade and start your own business with, a, uh, I can gather, a few friends? Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, with Rod and Andrew, who we'd actually all worked together uh, at E-Trade at various times, not completely overlapping um, uh, roles, but you know, um, Rod and I in particular had worked fairly closely together and, and then Andrew had worked at E-Trade you know, kind of later as, as Rod and I were uh, preparing to, to move off. Um, but yeah, I mean, where that really came from, I, I think so E-Trade and, and Comsec as well had started this process where, um, you know, if you're an advisor at a bigger firm, so maybe you'd you know, been at a full service firm, whether it be you know, Macquarie or JB Weir or, you know, um, uh, or others, you could basically go and use someone else's AFSL or get your own and, you know, start giving advice, general or, or personal. Um, and, you know, I think the standard model for an advisor at a, a full service broker back then was probably roughly 50-50 commission split. So you keep half of, of what you uh, of what you generate and, and half goes to the firm. Um, if you're a fairly self-sufficient advisor, then and you don't need the brand name of the bank or you don't need the research of the bank, then the model that E-Trade and Comsec were promoting was you go out on your own and you pay them you know, an execution cost for trades and they'll you know, execute them, clear them um, or settle them and, and you keep the rest. So that was you know, sort of a trend that we were observing and um, uh, towards the latter part of you know, my time at E-Trade, um, I worked with some of those clients and uh, you know, like I was saying before, we, we kind of observed that um, a lot of clients kind of needed, we thought, something in the middle. So they didn't necessarily need full service and they, and they certainly didn't need to pay full service rates of commission, um, but paying discount rates and not having any help or guidance you know, was problematic as well and, and we witnessed that firsthand. Uh, so we thought there was a good middle ground where um, you know, the model of that business or of, of our business that we're setting up would be that um, if you wanted to execute online, then you could and we wouldn't charge you anything extra for that. Um, if you wanted you know, general advice, um, uh, then you, know, you could have that and, and we would charge you more. Um, you know, also, you could execute by phone and, and we would charge you more. So the idea was that the model would sit somewhere in the middle of a full service and you know, discount broker. Um, that was, was a pretty good... Um, you know, business for us. And uh, how old were you at the time? Uh, I was 25 when we started that business. Mm. Um, so, frankly, you know, probably uh, <laughs> was maybe perhaps overconfident at, at that time in terms of our you know ability to make that work. But you know, I think the reality is when you're young and you don't have a lot of commitments financially or, or lifestyle-wise, um, you know, we felt that we would always get another job without any difficulty if it didn't work, um, and we felt that you know, it was worth a shot. Um, and I think our fallback position had been that, you know, during our time at E-Trade, we we're already obviously interested in the market and you can't work in that environment and not be curious about things that are happening and, you know, people who are making money and losing it and why are they making it or losing it and, and, and different things. So, you know, we'd already kind of started dabbling um, uh, around the edges in the market, but, you know, the reality was that none of us had any money. Um, but we're sitting there all day every day looking at these things that you know and, and I said to you before off air it's very hard when you don't have a lot of capital to begin with to just think you're going to buy BHP and the banks or Telstra and you know and, and outperform the market it's very hard as an individual or a small firm to have better insights into those stocks you know than um, 
much bigger, mm. uh, better resource firms. Um, but also, you know, there's not that I would have described it as such at the time, but there's beta risk in that in terms of, you know, if you own the, the big banks and you own Telstra and, and whatever else, the market dives 5 or 10% um, or more, you know, those stocks are probably going with it to a certain degree. And, and I guess we've seen that in the, you know, just the past week in terms of what's happened, um, you know, with the ASX here. Um, so, you know, we were looking for safe ways to apply what limited capital we had. Um, and <laughs> I should say up front that I certainly don't endorse <laughs> this, but uh, to anyone who's listening, uh, we actually started out kind of investing based on money that we were, uh, were cash advancing from credit cards, which um, sort of sounds crazy to say out loud after all this time. But, uh, you know, we would often see fairly low risk ways to make, you know, 5 or 10 or 15% uh, return on our money. Um, and, you know, back then the banks were doing a lot of kind of, you know, introductory kind of interest-free periods or, or 5% yeah. for, you know, 12 or 18 months or whatever. So mm-hmm. if you can make, you know, 5 or 10 or 15% in a few weeks, then it doesn't seem too crazy to, uh, you know, to pay 5% or so or, or nothing for an entire year. Um, but, of course, that necessitates having something that, that's fairly safe and not, you know, dependent solely on the market to generate returns because otherwise it's a fairly easy way to lose money. So I, I think if, you know, I think about how, things have evolved for us over time um, you know we'll get to it but the, the fund that we run now is is very much a market neutral absolute return fund the idea you know is not to lose money um, ideally and I think there are other reasons why we set the product up in that way but if if I kind of think back all that time ago um, you know I think having started out the way we did um, and the other thing is of course that, that when we set up that business you know your first clients are typically your family and friends because um, you know they, they feel like they have to be yep. <laughs> uh, you don't want to lose their money either right so you, you're kind of looking for these strategies or these ideas that um, you, you know uh, are fairly safe uh, at least as safe as equity market investing can be but that also is you know going to allow you to, to kind of compound um, you know relatively quickly in, in a safe manner so um, that was a good business. We, um, you know, we, we built that up to several thousand clients, and, and we we're doing good business. And uh, I think we had maybe 15 or 16 staff at its peak. Um, we got an offer to buy that business, um, and you know, at, at that stage, I mean, for me personally, I was the managing director of that business, and and I'd go home some days and not know what the market had done because I was so busy dealing with staff and customers and you know different things, and uh, you know, I've kind of personally felt that I wanted to get back to something that was more of a market-facing role and, and the timing of that was good, so uh, so that's what we did. Right, so how old were you when that happened? Uh, so we uh, we started um, uh, HG Securities in 2006 and we sold it in, I think, late 2009 or early 2010. So, um, uh, and I worked uh, in the business for, for a little bit longer um, post the sale. And then really we're at this point where you know, we had some, uh, you know, a reasonable amount of capital. Um, mm. You know, it was still the time when the GFC, uh, you know, I'm not sure people would say the GFC was over at that point. Um, you certainly weren't getting the market gyrations right at that stage that, that you had been prior. But the reality for us was we had a, you know, decent-sized um, pool of money, uh, no jobs, non-compete clauses, and, you know, no real desire to go back into that style of business anyway. So we'd always been doing our own thing. We'd always invested, you know, in the ideas that we were promoting, you know, to our clients um, uh, at HG Securities. And, you know, we kind of needed something that really the same thing, not because we're investing using credit cards now, but we have this money that you don't want to, to be subject to the whims of the market at the time. And, you know, if you kind of go back to 
know, kind of 2012 uh, when we're thinking about setting this up. Um, you know, the, I don't know, a lot of the things that have resolved themselves in the market since had not been resolved at that time. So I think the other thing that, you know, we were kind of doing that for a period of time. And again, your family and friends want you to, to invest some of their money, um, which, you know, you need a vehicle to do that with. Uh, so we were already kind of doing it ourselves and it, it didn't seem a stretch to, to let other people get involved. But the other thing that, that was kind of happening at that time was, um, you know, and we saw this firsthand in terms of, you know, some ex-clients of ours, a lot of people when the GFC hit, a lot of older investors um, were very happy to move their money into a term deposit. A five-year term deposit that you started in you know, 2007 was about 8% per annum fixed for five years. Mm-hmm. And you don't need the equity market for that, right? And especially at that time, um, you know, it, it made sense for a lot of investors not to do that. The problem was that rolling off those term deposits in kind of 2012, those people are kind of rolling into you know three or three and a half percent instead of eight. And I think you know we definitely observed a trend of people moving out of safer type investments, you know, such as maybe term deposits into bank shares and Telstra and some of these things that they were buying for yield. Uh, which is all well and good if the capital value you know of, uh, of those stocks is maintained, but you know we've seen it in Telstra since, and we've seen it in the banks since that it's, you know not much point having seven or eight percent per annum dividend yield uh, if you're going to you know sustain a twenty or thirty or forty percent you know mm. capital loss uh, throughout that period of time. So I think we kind of felt like you know there was a better way to offer investors um, you know equity market like returns but without full equity market risk. So, a, you know, lower beta, lower correlation style product, um, which, you know, would give people better than what they could get in the bank, but not expose them fully to the to the risk of the market. So, um, you know, that's easier said than done, obviously. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a good concept, but, um, you know, we, we needed a way to do that. And, um, you know, I guess we'll get to that at, uh, at some point. Yeah, we will. So the business that you started, um, which has done very well, uh, since since you did start it, it um, it's called Harvest Lane Asset Management. And uh, before we jump into the, your investment philosophy and we continue with that conversation, um, there is an interesting point of differentiation here, not only in the strategy, but outside of that is the way you deal with fees. Um, so perhaps you could tell us the fee structure of Sure. So, um, so the the fee structure that we use, which I guess is a little bit different to uh, to the industry norm, is um, uh, Harvest Lane is remunerated solely based on performance. So, um, I think you, your standard structure for most you know, fu- uh, fund managers or hedge fund managers um, is some kind of base fee, typically known as a management fee, um, and you know then some element of performance, and and that management fee. You know, in the first instance, goes towards things like paying for offices and salaries and rent and um, uh, computers and you know Bloomberg terminals, all those types of things. But obviously, beyond a certain point, what that management fee really does is, after it's covered all of the outgoings, it's really just lining the pockets of yeah. the fund manager. Um, uh, you know, and I think the problem with that is, you know, from my perspective, and, and I'm not saying that you know all fund managers are. Uh, you know, are so inclined, but you know, if you are just getting this nice little management fee every year, um, and you get it no matter how you perform, then the incentive becomes to just keep growing funds under management 
more or less indefinitely because you're just getting more and more money mm. and it becomes less about performance and more about the management fee and you know I think it's a pretty well proven concept that the bigger you get in terms of the more money you have to manage the harder it is to generate meaningful returns so typically you know beyond a certain point all managers will struggle and you know uh, we talked a little bit about Warren Buffett off air before but you know it's a perfect example I mean you know arguably one of the world's greatest investors if not the greatest but his you know uh, returns over the last 10 or 15 years are you know significantly diminished compared to his earlier years mm. and, and he admits himself that that's because he has so much more money now um, so our our thought process was that um, you know obviously we we have this business to make money both for ourselves on our own capital but you know also for external investors um, and you know, I don't think that most people object to paying fees, and, and certainly, you know, we intend to do well out of, uh, of the business. But um, the nice thing about our model is that people are paying us relative to performance. So if we are earning a lot of money, then they are also earning a lot of money. And if we're not earning a lot of money, then they haven't either, which, you know, is obviously not our preference, but at least they know they haven't paid us to do a, a poor job. Um, so the model we use is all external outgoings from the fund which is really just administration um, custody um, and the audit of the fund which are all you know unavoidable parts of, of running a, a retail or, or wholesale fund to some degree uh, those costs um, are taken out of the fund but that's it so we pay for all of our own offices um, computers taxi staff you know airfares etc um, you know that comes out of out of our performance fees so um, you know we just kind of feel like that's a better model that it aligns us you know more with our investors and you know I think frankly the industry is moving that way um, there aren't a lot of managers that I know of that, that get remunerated in that way but investors you know have kind of voted with their feet you look at how um, popular passive investments uh, you know ETFs and the like have become over the past you know two or three years it's because you know people don't want to pay for something that they can kind of get you know um, do themselves or, or achieve in a passive way. I think that you know the fund managers who have viable businesses going forward will be those that can bring some kind of you know point of differentiation or some kind of return stream that you know isn't easily replicated through a passive vehicle. Um, you know, I would be worried if I was a fund manager who was mostly index hugging and trying to charge you know any more than the bare minimum of fees to do that because I think that's easily replicated elsewhere now. Mm, that's that's a really good point you make, and I think in a sense it does future-proof your business at least for a little while. But uh, it's also I really want to emphasize that um, paying more fees than you should it does have a serious impact on your wealth. So especially that management fee, which can be very cushy if you have, say, $100 million and you're earning a 1% management fee. It's quite generous. Absolutely. And it's incredibly scalable, not for the client or the investor, but the, um, the fund manager. So uh, do you think in a way that this does provide some, I suppose, protection against smart beta funds? And, and Yeah, look, I, I think so. I mean, um, you know, I mean, fees are obviously part of the equation. So I personally feel um, that you know investors acting rationally, and uh, let's face it, not all, mm. all investors do all of the time. But you know how I would like to be judged, and how I think you know all fund managers should be judged is is after fee returns. So you know to some extent the fees is definitely very important, but I think what you get in return for that fee is also important. So you know an example of that might be that you know if you're with manager A who gets you 15% per annum and charges you you know. 2% in fees, well, you know, 
you're net 13 for the year versus a manager who gets you you know 9% but charges you 1% per annum well mm. you know the fee is half but the return is lower now you know obviously we need to assume that they're sustainable and that will always be the case and um, you know it's very dangerous uh, in economics and finance to assume uh, that all else is equal because it rarely is but I guess my point is that you know to me the rational investor, if the risk profile of both of those funds is the same, should be going for the one with the higher fees that's provided better returns through time. And, and I'm not sure, um, you, you know, how many of your listeners would be familiar with, um, you know, Renaissance. Uh, mm. I mean, they are by far the best performing, you know, hedge fund um, anywhere over more or less any time period you'd like to pick since they started. I think they're still taking a performance fee of, you know, 45% per annum in addition to their management fee. Um, it's mostly staffed. Uh, it's mostly funded now by staff, and people are banging down the door to get the money in there because the returns are so good. Now, anyone who's going to rule someone out purely based on fees is never even going to consider that fund, um, and, and that would probably be a mistake. So, I, I definitely think that sometimes the fees uh, are overblown, but you know. I think it comes down to if you can get the same outcome in either fund, absolutely choose the lowest one. And, you know, similarly, if you can get the same benefits from two credit cards, choose the lowest cost one. And if you can get the same benefit from two mortgages, I mean, you know, it, it all makes a difference, right? It doesn't make that much difference now. It makes a difference when compounded over five or 10 or 20 or 40 years mm-hmm. that, um, you know, that's where the difference comes in. So, um, you know, I think especially the way that we invest money, the, the you know, kind of merger arb and special situation stuff we do, it's very difficult to replicate passively. And, and there are funds in the US that have tried to do it passively and you know, their returns are frankly abysmal because okay. part of it is avoiding the losses that you know, if you're doing it passively, you don't have that discretion around what you're investing in and, and what you're not. And um, I think in the space that we're in, that's a, a fairly important differentiator. Yeah, I think so. Um, you touched on it there briefly, what you do, which is effectively... Uh, taking advantage of the pricing, I suppose, um, discrepancies between um, securities that are trading on the market or shares that are trading on the market and are subject to a takeover at a price. Yep. So perhaps you can explain from a high level what it is that you do and also the mechanics of how that works. Sure. So I mentioned before that you know we had this great idea that we'd like to provide equity market-like returns without full equity market risk. Um, and, you know, <laughs> lots of people have tried that uh, over time um, with varying de- degrees of success. But one thing, you know, we'd always sort of traded, um, you know, for ourselves and, and for our clients at, at HC Securities um, was, uh, you know, merger arb or what people would call merger arb. And, and I really strongly dislike that term because anyone with a passing interest in finance thinks of merger arb as being really risky and you know uh, I mean John Paulson who was made famous by his bets against um, you know the housing market and the banks uh, at the time of the GFC uh, I think his merger arb fund lost 50 odd percent the year before last Um, and if that's the impression that people have of merger arb then you know they uh, they they kind of run uh, screaming for the hills in the opposite direction when you mention it but um, the reality is that you know uh, there are very different types of transactions in that space and and the nice thing about a transaction that is likely to succeed that has minimal conditions uh, attached to it is that it should decouple from the market and what I mean by that so to use an example um, company XYZ is, is trading on the ASX and it's currently trading at 70 cents 
And uh, tomorrow morning before the market opens, they announce that they've received a takeover approach, uh, which is binding, and the bidder is proposing to pay $1 per share um, to acquire the company. And typically, you would expect that to complete in around about three to four months' time. So obviously, you know, there's paperwork that needs to be drawn up, and depending on the, the uh, between the companies, depending on the structure, shareholders will you know need to vote on it mm-hmm. or um, to decide whether they'd like it to go ahead um, or to tender their shares into the offer. Um, and, but you know, to get the ball rolling, they announce it to the ASX. So um, all else being equal, when that stock resumes trading. I'm expecting it's going to you know, start trading again at, at about 96 or 97 cents would be um, you know, a, a fairly normal level. Now, why does it trade at 96 or 97 cents? Well, you know, obviously there's a time value component in terms of you're not actually getting the dollar for another three or four months, so you, know, you need to discount that slightly, um, but, but also you know, for risk of the transaction proceeding. So um, you know, at the moment, that's a, a proposed transaction, it's binding, but typically there'll be conditions you know, attached to the offer. I mean, like I say, shareholders will, will need to approve it, but you know, other um, transactions may need a triple C approval uh, for competition competition reasons, or they may need foreign investment review board approval. Um, maybe the bidder hasn't secured funding yet. Um, you know, maybe uh, the bidder says they'll only go ahead with the transaction if the market hasn't fallen by 10 or 15 percent over that period of time. Um, you know, and then the other thing is, is the price good enough? So, you know, if you look at the existing shareholders in the company, are they going to be happy with a dollar, or are they going to say that's you know, too low? So, all of those factors, you know, will determine where that stock resumes trading. Um, but of course, you know, there's a little bit of margin to be captured there between, uh, you know, buying the stock at 96 or 97 and receiving a dollar in, you know, three months' time. Which, um, I mean, that return is not amazing, but it's not terrible. And the important thing is that if that uh, offer has fairly low conditions attached, so let's say that you have a credible bidder who've com- who has completed transactions before, um, the bid's fully funded. Uh, there's no market out clauses that say if the index falls by a certain amount that it won't go ahead. It doesn't need ACCC approval. Um, it doesn't need FIRB approval. And you know, a dollar is the highest that the stock has ever traded at. Um, I'm saying that you know, generally there's a good chance that, that transaction will go ahead in its current form. But the other more interesting or additionally interesting piece of the puzzle is that no one says that that's going to only be sold at a dollar. So what may happen is that shareholders may not like that price and they may lobby the bidder to pay more than a dollar, maybe a dollar 10, maybe a dollar 20. Um, there may be competitors to the bidder who are also interested you know, um, in the target who are also willing to pay a dollar 10 or a dollar 20. Um, and you know, we've seen situations uh, at times where um, you know, one that sticks in my mind always is a, a, a coal seam gas company, which would have been, I guess, around 2010, perhaps. Uh, there was a company called Pure Energy, which um, the initial bid for that company was a dollar. Uh, and within a matter of months, the final bid, um, uh, I forget the exact number, but it was north of $7. It may have been $8. Um, wow. Uh, Ludawisi Group was another, it's like a mining engineering services firm. The initial bid was at, I think, $3.50, which was 100% premium at the time, which mm. is a huge premium. Mm. Um, it ended up, I think, at eleven fifty or 12 um, And one that had happened once we'd already started, uh, the, the fund that we have now was Warnable Cheese and Butter. I think mm. the initial bid was, 
I think 475 or thereabouts, and that finished at nine or 950. So, um, you know, that that is something that happens infrequently but often enough that it adds meaningful value to return. So um, we call that embedded, you know, there's an embedded call option in that price. So going back to my XYZ example, um, you know, we pay 96 or 97 cents. Uh, you know, if we are fairly confident that getting a dollar is our worst case scenario, then, you know, getting a dollar 10 or a dollar 20 or a dollar 50 or $2, um, you know, we're not really paying for that. The idea of a call option is that it has some kind of premium attached to it and that, you know, you typically need to outlay money for a call option. In this case, you're sort of getting paid to have that call option. Now, the issue, however, is that if this transaction fails and I've just paid 96 or 97 cents for this stock after they've announced their takeover, then the stock's probably falling back to 70 cents, which is where it was trading before. And in fact, it may actually go somewhat lower in the short term because... You know, there will undoubtedly have been some other parties like us who buy the stock expecting mm. to get at least a dollar and, and maybe more, who will then want to liquidate their position. So um, our process really is to try and find you know, these opportunities where we think that the bid in its current form, so in the case of XYZ, that the dollar bid is very likely to succeed absent a better offer and that the chances of it going back to 70 cents or lower are very, very slim. Um, However, for risk management purposes, we assume that every deal we do could fall over. We call it break, the deal breaks, mm -hmm. um, and that it goes back to its pre-bid trading price, um, and, and we will position size accordingly because inevitably, you know, despite our best efforts and all of the checklists and the process and, and everything, there'll be you know, one or two deals a year typically where that happens, where okay. we think that a deal will complete and, and it hasn't. Um, and the key with this strategy really is the gains kind of take care of themselves. Um, it's it's the losses that you need to avoid. And, and if you can avoid those losses, then, then there's a real edge to be exploited. But um, the nice thing about these transactions is, you know, if the market falls 20% tomorrow, XYZ should be unmoved because a dollar is still worth a dollar in three months' time. So if there's nothing about that market fall that's going to impact this transaction, then the stock should be barely moved, and if it does move, it should recover quite quickly. Um, importantly, from a portfolio perspective, if I've got 10 or 15 or 20 stocks that are all subject to their own individual transactions, not only will they not be correlated to the market, but they're also not correlated to each other because you have very specific circumstances uh, you know, to each stock, which is driving the you know, future share price performance. So um, we didn't end up at merger ARB because we wanted to trade merger ARB necessarily, we ended up at merger ARB because it displays the return characteristics that we're trying to achieve in you know the funds that we have essentially. Yeah, so um, what's a, a really good point to touch on is that when there's excessive volatility in the market, you know shares are bouncing around every every other way, um, because these ten or fifteen securities are subject to takeover, you can. Um, you know, minimise that volatility and uh, have a very low beta. Um, can you tell us a bit more about, I suppose, how you go about finding these opportunities, wait for market releases, and then, I suppose, how you value how you sure. value positions? Yeah, so um, that is one thing about the strategy is it's, it's more reactive um, than proactive in the sense that you need to wait for something to present itself mm. that you can take advantage of or aim to take advantage of. So, you know, your average fund manager is out there meeting, you know, 100, 200, 300 companies a year and they're, you know, getting ideas about the company's operations and what the stock might be worth and 
maybe it goes in the portfolio now, maybe they want to wait for another time. Um, our process is much more, you know, ASX announcements um, and the media generally are a much bigger source of ideas for us than, um, you know, I guess for a traditional fund manager. So um, we're definitely buying things post announcement. So, you know, to, to get this return profile that we're looking for, we really have to wait for deals to be announced to know that you know they're reasonably likely to complete. The, the problem with buying targets that are speculated or that we think you know could get taken over, um, you know, I could pick a stock that I buy at two dollars today because I think it's going to get taken over. If that stock halves in the next twelve months and then gets taken over, well, I was right, but we lost half of the investors' money you know in that position in the meantime so it's very much about waiting for um, you know an opportunity and, and that's literally just a whole bunch of you know alerts and filters to identify certain keywords that would form part of you know an ASX announcement about a transaction um, you know we're kind of filtering down opportunities that then need to be at least skim read in the first instance to see if there's you know a genuine angle there, and then you know we'll get an idea pretty quickly of, of whether or not you know there's something worth looking at more closely, um, and you know we have a, a, a pretty big checklist actually of things that we're looking for that will dictate whether or not this is something that we feel is investable. Um, it may be that we like it, but not at its current price. Um, it may be that you know we like it, but there are some things that you know remain question marks for us. So that might necessitate taking a smaller position than we might otherwise, and, and wait and see how things unfold. Or maybe we're very comfortable with it and, and we take a fairly full size you know uh, risk position initially. Um, the valuation part is difficult in the sense that you know we kind of have our own ideas about valuation and to some extent broker research can be helpful in that regard um, just to give you sort of the flavor of you know what the market's expectations for the stock are um, you know when we were talking about university before you said you, you need to learn the rules of the game before you can play it even if you um, you know you don't agree with the rules per se but I think it's good to have a feel for what does the market think this stock could be worth who are the major investors and what have they paid we'll have our own ideas um, but in some respects, once the takeover process is underway, it's almost like selling a house, right? You have an auction and your house is kind of worth what someone else is going to pay for it on the day. So, um, you know, if you ask me in our portfolio right now to nominate three stocks that I thought were most likely to attract additional or improved bids, I'd pick three and I'd likely be wrong mm. because it's hard to know which ones are going to be the ones that attract additional bids. Uh, it's more so about making sure that you know you have a portfolio of good opportunities that are unlikely to fail, and then the good ones sort of take care of themselves. And, and to give you a left field example, um, you know, Certex uh, we had in the portfolio earlier in the year, um, and Certex had been a market darling, and mm. then had been sold off a lot by the market. Um, they received a bid. Uh, I would say we were far from confident about, um, it definitely wasn't a full-size risk position for us because um, we had some concerns about the transaction completing, but more so around where the stock might trade in the event that the takeover wasn't successful. So typically we initially have an eye to the downside in everything and then you know everything kind of builds its way up from there. Um, the funny thing about Certex was that uh, almost unanimously the market and brokers and probably fund managers were of the view that it was a good price and that the transaction would go ahead and literally the day before the shareholder vote was supposed to take place uh, they received another non-binding bid out of further 
20 or 25% premium to uh, the transaction that had already been tabled. Now, if you'd asked me that morning what the chances were that Surtex would get another bid at a 20 to 25% premium above the transaction shareholders were about to vote on, I would have told you a million to one. Not impossible because, you know, nothing is, but it just was not on our radar, and I don't think anyone's radar is, is something that was possible. And yet it happened. Mm. Um, and, you know, I mean, I talked about Pure Energy before where the initial bid's a dollar and it gets taken out at eight, or Warrnambool, which, you know, is bid at 450 or 75 and gets taken out at nine. If you ask us at the start of those transactions, you know, what price would you be happy with here? We're never nominating those prices. Or what do you think this is worth? Because you just don't nominate those prices. It's so far removed from what you think is possible. But that's the nice thing about the strategy is that you don't really have to worry that much about it. I mean, we need to be reasonably comfortable that, you know, what we're paying is okay in in terms of, you know, from a valuation perspective. And we certainly need to have confidence in you know, uh, the pre-bid trading levels, right? So if the stock's trading at 70 cents before um, the transaction is announced uh, in the, the XYZ example, we're probably not using, or we're not using 70 cents as a stop. We would use the six month low um, leading up to the bid. So that might okay. be more like 50 or 55 cents. Um, and sometimes that's, you know, too conservative, but we're really trying to take the view of what is, you know, the worst that's going to happen here. And I think if the stock's at 70 before the bid and assuming that it, you know, the bid hasn't leaked and the stock hasn't run up um, excessively in, you know, prior to the bid. I think it's fair to assume that, you know, if the stock was at 70, it should trade at 55 or higher, um, you know, in the event that the transaction falls over. So um, that's how we would, you know, kind of build that out. As long as you can get comfortable around your downside risk in each of the positions, um, you know, the, the upside a lot of the time, you know, takes care of itself. Um, and, and that's why we want those bidding wars that, you know, kind of have competitive tension and, um, uh, you know, where you get an outcome that, that you don't expect. I mean, um, Atlas Iron is a, a recent example mm. of, of something that, that we did um, that I, I know you're aware of. Um, you know, that situation initially, Atlas was in a position where, you know, the future of the company was in doubt somewhat, I guess. Um, they'd had a bit of a near-death experience uh, when the iron ore price had, had tumbled previously. Um, it had been restructured uh, by creditors, um, had performed well for a period of time, and then you know they were kind of back in a position where they were struggling to meet the marginal cost of production based on the, the current iron ore price. Um, they got a bid from Mineral Resources, um, which was predominantly a script bid at that time, and, and from memory valued you know Atlas at around 2.8 cents or 3 cents at the time the transaction was announced. Um, and, you know, the stock traded the discount to the implied value of that bid for, for a period of time um, and then out of nowhere started trading the premium. Now, we had a position at the time um, and, uh, you know, we have rules about certain valuation levels where we will be looking to lighten a position. And as a general rule, if a stock is trading 10% above the current value of the best offer on the table, we will be lightening that position. Um, it's sort of an arbitrary number, but the reason that we do that is because most new bids, if they're announced or improved bids, won't be more than 10% above you know, where the current offer is, typically. Okay. It's, it would be rare for a bid to be at a dollar and then the next one's at a dollar fifty or two dollars. It would typically go a dollar, a dollar ten, a dollar twenty, whatever. So, you know, taking money off the table when there's no, you know, guarantee of an improved offer makes sense. Um, 
and that's what we did in, in the AGO transaction. So we're starting to take money off the table. Uh, I noticed a massive line of stock go through the market at a significant premium to um, you know to the implied value of the, the uh, mineral resources offer, uh, which you know obviously halted my selling at, at that point in time. And um, uh, I can't remember who the first bidder was there, whether it was uh, or the the first announced buyer of that stock was um, Fortescue um, and uh, Hancock Prospecting were, were the two parties that had taken stakes. And, and the stock had become very volatile at that time. So basically, you know, through a bit of good fortune, we were able to sell a lot of what we uh, had bought at higher prices during the initial raid. Um, the enthusiasm subsided back closer to the, you know, the value of the mineral resources offer when no one knew what was going on otherwise, were able to buy the position back. Um, and then basically where it ended up was that Fortescue and uh, um, Hancock were both bidding for the company. Um, and the final price looked like it was gonna be 4.2 cents. So we'd paid you know, 2.6 or seven, sold probably at three and a half, bought back at around three, sold back out at you know, kind of four and, and we're back in again. Um, we thought that we were getting 4.2 cents and that was it. But through a quirk of, uh, I guess the way the takeover code is applied in Australia, um, we've actually ended up getting 4.6 cents uh, a share and you know we haven't quite doubled our money, but it's been a good transaction for us. Um, and you know, that's a, I guess another example of that transaction had very little excitement around it, very little media attention whatsoever. Um, you know, we actually had some concerns that mineral resources may not be successful initially because we thought that shareholders were probably so apathetic to the whole situation given the poor performance of the stock up until then that you know um, the bid may not even proceed mm. and then you know within a, a, a matter of a month or two we're uh, you know getting 4.6 cents a share so um, but the important thing there was that you know we needed to keep that optionality over that upside for you know to allow that to happen so whilst we want to be taking money off the table uh, you don't want to be taking too much off because you know, these strange situations happen where things end up trading, you know, much higher than, than you might anticipate that they would. Mm. You mentioned something earlier on which was about being um, reactive, potentially, to news. You have to wait for the deal to be announced and then you take a position. When you're dealing with small companies, say like Atlas at the time, yep. does that create imperative on you to start your research immediately and then you know get some sort of you know you do that skim read and then look at the liquidity in the market see how many shares you can accumulate yeah absolutely so um i mean the second that's announced uh and, and the asx have just changed the rules around this very recently actually so um before uh rarely would a stock announce a transaction um on any given day and, and resume trading before 11 o'clock would typically have been uh when the stock would would come out of pre-open and, and start trading again uh so we had this nice little window every morning where you know prior to 11 o'clock or, or 10 to 11 when the stock would uh, go into pre-open. Um, you know, you have time to be kind of doing background research. Um, now they the rules have changed. It's it's basically just an hour after the announcement is when the stock will come out of, of pre-open. So if the transaction's announced at you know 8.30 in the morning, then it, it resumes as normal at 10 o'clock. Uh, but in any case, um, you're exactly right. So the, the good news about the length of time that we've all been in the market for is, you know, in, in the case of Rod Andrew and I, it's, you know, coming up on 20 years each, just about. Um, you obviously get to know the stocks and mm. you know the management, and you have an idea of who the shareholders are, and you have some idea about where the stocks traded and the history it's been through. I mean, all that stuff about you know Atlas and the creditors and whatever. I knew that well before that transaction was announced because you read the financial media every day and you've maybe traded the stock before. You, you can't help but not know. I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the process definitely for us is okay. There's a transaction. Um, how binding is it? 
is it binding to start with? Uh, what are the conditions? And then, you know, who is the bidder? Um, like I was saying before, are they credible? Do they already have the money? Um, you know, are there any regulatory concerns that, that we need to think about? Um, you know, who's on the register of the target company already? You know, are, are they fund managers who are likely to sell? Is there, you know, maybe a strategic competitor or a potential strategic buyer who may, you know, want to make a counter bid? Um, you know, all of those types of things. Are, mm. You know, where's the stock traded previously? What's the average kind of analyst price target? Um, you know, what's the six month low? What are their last, you know, earnings, one or two earnings announcements, you know, look like? Um, any of that type of stuff that's relevant to, to try and build a picture. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes we have more than enough time to do, you know, all of the initial work that we would, would like to do. Um, you know, sometimes we don't. Um, and, you know, if we're not, if we haven't done everything we need, then, you know, we may not have a position initially. We may have, you know, a half or three quarter size position until we, you know, can check off a, a couple of other things. Um, you know, sometimes there's benefit in buying early, as in, you know, buying straight away, you might get a better entry. Sometimes you get a worse entry because, you know, people kind of rush in and then, you know, things kind of normalise a, a little bit afterwards. So that's more a, um, an art than a science. But, you know, typically you have a few days to build these positions because, or longer because what happens is after the transaction is announced, nothing much really happens for a period of time thereafter. If another you know, competitor firm is going to bid, they won't typically bid the next day. It's you know two weeks down the track or two months down the track or you know whatever the case may be. Um, a lot of fund managers uh, you know who might want to sell that stock because it's you know through their valuation level or whatever the case may be, they're typically not doing it on the first day. That you know kind of takes a few days to you know kind of make that decision from an investment committee point of view and, and whatever. So um, you know we don't always have to you know buy everything we need initially. There's, there's time and, and sometimes there'll be things that you know that these deals have a timeline and certain things that you know have to happen uh, at certain times for the deal to succeed you know sometimes we may have some uncertainty about something we like the situation but we want to see how that plays out so you know maybe we add to the position later or maybe we're confident about something but then when that you know period comes around four weeks down the track maybe you know something that we had anticipated happening doesn't then we might lighten the position. So it, it, it's definitely not a set and forget type of strategy. Um, and you know, I said before, I think this is a very hard strategy to replicate passively because mm. one, you know, you want to do some filtering or screening to avoid the bad deals. But secondly, you know, um, things change as the deal progresses. So you know, just because you want to own it on day one, you might want to own it on day ten or you know, day thirty. So um, I think it's. You know, you definitely need to be organised, and you need to um, understand, you know, certain conditions and, and timeframes. And um, you know, it's I guess it's just part of our day-to-day process now. To, it feels normal. It it um, it's certainly uh, not within my wheelhouse, I'd say, to to exploit these types of opportunities. Would you say? Um, I mean, we're not advocating here that you just go out and buy every. Um, takeover into every takeover that's on the market but um is it something that you think's better left to professionals or uh yeah look i think you know absolutely a retail investor who is organized and who understands the landscape um you know both from a market and regulatory point of view can absolutely do this but it's a full-time job in the Mm. sense that you know um when we started here today, the, the market is open, right? Now, you know, I have a whole firm, you know, built around me who, you know, my business partners, Rod and Andrew and, and the guys who work in our investment team, 
I could be here talking to you knowing that if something important happened to one of our positions at you know, three o'clock, it's gonna get at least one set of eyeballs and possibly multiple and that we can react accordingly. So, you know, I sort of feel like a lot of, you know, investment strategies are not part-time investment strategies, as in, you know, either you're doing it all yourself or, you know, if you are doing it yourself, you kind of need that backup, right? Because people need days off and they need time to go and get lunch and they, you know, need to go on holidays and they, all kinds of things, go to the dentist, whatever it is, it's, you know, it's Murphy's Law, right? The hour you step away from the screen or half an hour or the day you take off, you know, this isn't buying BHP or the banks in terms of, you know, you kind of just, I don't think, buy them and, and just leave it and see what happens, right? It's It needs to be much more active than that. So I would definitely never say that a retail investor can't do this themselves. I think they absolutely can. Um, but, you know, there are some complications and it's probably the 5% of things that are easy to miss that you learn through experience that, you know, can maybe sometimes be the difference between losing money and, and not. And, you know, like I said before, the real key is to avoid the, the blow up. So if I was telling a retail investor to do this, um, and, and to some extent it's our strategy as well, is if something's complex or you don't understand it or you're not sure where it could go wrong or if it's like an ACCC or, you know, FIRB type situation, um, you know, something that the people often ask me and, you know, the, that you've referenced previously um, off air is, you uh, you know, this is a complex um, environment. So how do you, you know, do, do we need or do we use experts, right? Do we need to talk to, to lawyers and, you know, different things? Um, the answer to that question is we will absolutely use specialists, um, you know, if and when we need them. But in some ways, if a transaction gets to the point where we need specialist external advice, it's probably not a transaction we want to be in because typically you're getting the expert advice because it's not clear to you what the outcome might be. And as soon as it's not clear what the outcome might be, well, I feel like you're giving up a bit of your edge because what we want to do is pick things that we don't think can fail um, or are very low chances of, of, of failing. Um, and then, like I said, we feel like the rest, you know, the gains kind of take care of themselves. If I need to get a specialist on competition law to tell me whether this takeover can proceed or whether the FIRB is likely to approve this deal, well, arguably that's at the point where it's not certain enough that we should be in it. Um, the problem with ACCC and, and FIRB as well is it's very political. So, you know, um, a precedent from two years ago or even two months ago isn't that helpful if you've now got a different government or the same government that's in a weaker position than they were previously from a polling perspective. Um, You you know, that's something we're trying to avoid. So I think, you know, if I was telling a retail investor, how do you do this? You've just got to pick the stuff that's safe. And if you don't understand that it's, you know, if you can't tell that it's safe and you're not sure where you can get tripped up, then, you know, I'd encourage people not to try and do it Mm. themselves. Um, And, you know, I mean... Uh, from a selfish perspective, you know, part of the benefit, I think, of the way that we've structured this type of stuff is that, you know, you're only paying if we do a good job. So, uh, you know, I would hope a lot of people would look at it and go, I could do it myself. It seems like a lot of work. There are, you know, other people out there, Harvest Lane, who could do it for me. And, you know, um, I think that's, you know, the idea from from our perspective. But, um, uh, you know, I, I just think in general, like, if you work at UBS or Macquarie or any of these firms, Everyone's still people, so I don't think you have to work in one of those places. I think the stock market a little bit is like playing professional golf, right? It doesn't matter, you know, how good your equipment is or whether you grew up in a country club environment or a public golf course or whatever. 
there's no guarantees. You turn up every week and you play, and if you're good enough, you make the cut, and if you're you know even better than that, you win. And it doesn't matter. You know, Tiger Woods doesn't get paid next week if he doesn't make the cut. And the market's kind of like that as well. I think sometimes retail investors can think they're at a distinct disadvantage against professionals. And definitely to some extent that's true, but there are also a lot of ways in which retail investors are at an advantage uh, versus professionals. Um, so, you know, I'm an advocate, and I'm sure you are too, of the fact that, you know, retail investors can definitely perform at least as well as professionals, you know, if not better. So um, I would never encourage someone not to, uh, to do it if that's, you know, what they're interested in. Yeah, great. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, okay, so... Let's round out the conversation. Um, there's a, you've got a, a great blog that people can access. Um, you can subscribe to the monthly newsletters if they want to learn more. Yep. Anywhere else they should go? Uh, look, we, you know, I mean, that, that would definitely be the, the main two sources, I think, of information. Um, you know, we, we've got some kind of white papers and strategy documents floating around from our early days that, you know, kind of really spell out the, um, uh, the whole process in terms of, you know, why we do what we do and some of the risks and some case studies and, and whatnot. So, um, you know, I'd certainly welcome anyone, uh, you know, contacting us to, to talk about that if they'd like to. Um, there, there are some you know decent books out there, mostly US books about not just M&A. Um, uh, there's a book, I think Eli Greenblatt is the author. I'm not sure if you're familiar with any of his stuff. Um, he's got a, a book that's, uh, I think it's called something like The Little Book That Beats the Market oh, yeah. um, yep. is, is one of them. Um, the other one is called something really cheesy like uh, Trade Your Way to Financial Freedom or something, <laughs> um, which sounds terrible. Uh, and very spooky, but um, it, it's actually has good content. And, and the whole premise of the book, and I guess this just links back to what you're asking me about retail investors doing stuff themselves. The whole premise is all the cool stuff that small investors can do that's very hard for professionals to do um, in a meaningful size, but that makes a real difference to compounding you know, wealth at an individual level. Um, I'm not sure if you have show notes or something in your podcast, yeah, but maybe you, you can find yeah. those books and, and put them there. I, I think they're great um, You know, for trading more specifically and, and mindset. I think you know, I'm sure other people covered it before all the market wizards books i think you know mm. are great again just because you see people from such diverse backgrounds in terms of socioeconomic and education and all these things um and they just come up with these cool and crazy ways to to make money um you know some people you've never heard of who just have these great you know strategies mm. and make great money and um they've just found something that that works so um you know i think for anyone who's kind of interested in some of the stuff that we're doing you know those books are, are probably helpful yeah great great um okay final question look if you could go back in time um, and tell a younger you just one thing about money, about finance, about investing, what would it be? Uh, yeah, look, you know, I, <laughs> I knew this was coming, um, so I tried to make some notes about this, and it wasn't one thing. I, I <laughs> That's all right. I, I made a, few, a list of a few things. I mean, if, if it was literally just one thing, I, I think it's, you know, more or less what we just talked about, as in there's no shortcuts and you need to do the work and you know your background and and where you work and you know whatever i mean it helps maybe sometimes but at the end of the day you know the market doesn't care about that stuff either you've got something that that works or doesn't and i think um you know you need to have the courage of your convictions be confident in the work that you've done if you've done it you also need to be humble enough to realize that you might be wrong um and that you know um ask heaps of questions. I was a pain. I was such a pain at Platinum and such a pain at E-Trade to people who were my initial bosses because I just wanted to know how everything worked. And to their credit, they were very patient. But it's how you find out, right? You, you need to ask mm, questions. You can't absolutely. be embarrassed. And you, know, you can learn from the mistakes and experience of others. Um, so you know, I think that's really important. 
And I think, you know, the other thing that, that I just wrote here is that, you know, money allows you to do some cool stuff and it's the things that, you know, we talked about at the start. But um, I saw a quote probably on social media somewhere not that long ago that said something along the lines of, you know, it costs zero money to be a good person. And I, I do think, you know, money's just one dimension for me, as in it's great and, you know, um, uh, it's better to have it than not, I think, generally. Um, but, you know, money doesn't substitute, in my mind, for other things such as, you know, being nice to others and having compassion and, mm. you know, all those things that um, make it easier to be a human being and, you know, uh, have good relationships with family and friends and stuff. So I think, you know, I initially thought it was all about when I was 15 or 16, probably about the fast cars and the nice houses and stuff. Mm. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I think that it's probably about more than that. So that's not one thing, but, um, yeah, you know, uh, fine by me. four or five things. That's, uh, that's great. And a great way to end, end the chat. Luke, thanks for your time today, and I wish you all the best with Harvest Loan. Thanks, Owen. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks again for tuning in to the Australian Investors Podcast. For further episodes, head to www.raskfinance.com. To provide feedback, nominate a guest, or hear from me, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at Owen Rask. Cheers to our financial futures.